Hello and welcome to the Line Edit Podcast, generously supported by the John Templeton Foundation. I'm your host, James Ryerson. On these podcasts, I speak with academics about the craft and the process of writing about their work for popular outlets like newspapers and magazines, rather than scholarly outlets like journals. These are typically short pieces written for wide audiences tackling the big questions. On this season of the Line Edit podcast, you'll hear from psychologists talking about science and religion. You'll hear from philosophers talking about the ethics of Facebook. We've got physicists talking about quantum entanglement and uh, neuroscientists talking about emotions. Hopefully along the way, you'll also learn about what it's like to be an academic trying to write for the broader public. So who am I? I have been an editor at the New York Times since 2003. I was first at the Sunday Magazine, and uh, for about eight years I've been working now at the Opinion Pages. I edit all kinds of pieces on all kinds of topics by all kinds of writers, but I specialize in working with scholars and with academics. So the idea for these podcasts uh, grew out of a series of weekend writing workshops that I have been conducting over the past few years. These are workshops for academics looking to do precisely this type of writing. Many of the attendees have told me over the years that they enjoy hearing not just from me about the process of editing, but hearing directly from other academics who have already done this kind of writing so that they can get both perspectives, not just mine as an editor, but the perspective of a writer having to deal with this process from that end. So hence these podcasts, which I hope will help convey the entire editorial conversation to you. In this capacity, I'm especially delighted to have as my first guest, uh, the scientist Lisa Feldman Barrett. Lisa is an academic I've published a great many times at the New York Times. I I believe I've done 11 pieces with her. Uh, She uh, does fascinating work about the human mind, uh, the human brain, and the human body, and how they all work together, um, especially as they all collaborate to create uh, the emotions. Uh, She is the author of a fantastic and important book called How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain, which was published by Houghton Mifflin Hardcourt. Uh, She's also written popular pieces for many other outlets other than uh, at the New York Times, such as the Financial Times, The Guardian, and uh, NPR. In addition, Lisa's uh, especially great guest to have today because it was in conversation with her uh, several years ago that the idea of having me conduct writing workshops first came about. It was in large part her idea. Um, And so by extension, uh, she's also responsible for the existence of these podcasts. Uh, And that is why she is the absolutely perfect guest to kick them off. I am... Sitting in a recording room uh, in the um, New York Times building, and Lisa is, I believe, in her home in in Boston. Uh, So uh, welcome, Lisa, and and thanks for taking the time to talk. I'm absolutely delighted to be here and talk with you today. Thank you. Thank you. So Lisa, what what are you? You're a psychologist. You're a neuroscientist. I I can't ever quite figure it out. Your work seems to span a lot of different uh, disciplines. (laughs) I I think I am... Whatever is most different from whoever else I happen to be around in the, in the <laughs> moment. <laughs> so um, I was trained uh, as a psychologist. And after a couple of years of doing research in psychology, I retrained in neuroscience. So I would say sometimes I'm wearing a neuroscience hat, a neuroscientist's hat. Sometimes I'm wearing a psychologist's hat. Sometimes uh, I f- flatter myself and think I'm trying to wear a philosopher's hat. Um, but uh, that's sort of the domain that I span. And uh, it, it, it occurs to me that we should we should pause at this point uh, to note that we could do a whole podcast uh, just on uh, Lisa's work and why it's so important and why it's so interesting. Um, and in fact, for listeners who are interested, there are places you can go on the internet uh, to to read about Lisa's work or hear her discuss it in other interviews. So we'll try not to, to dwell on it too much in, in detail in the, in the podcast here because it it's a whole story unto itself. But just so that people have some, some rough sense, um, I would say, and Lisa, maybe you can kind of correct my kind of brief characterization. I would say that people who misrepresent your work say that you think that emotions don't exist. But when in fact you, you, you believe that emotions do exist, um, but they just not in the in the way they're just not what we naively take them to be. Uh, you know, there's not like a unique 
biological fingerprint for, say, fear or joy that you can find across people and, and culture that's sort of built into us biologically, but rather that emotions are constructed by our bodies and brains in more varying and idiosyncratic ways. Yeah, that's exactly right. When people, when I say to people, well, there's no spot in your body or a spot in your brain where an emotion comes from or is issued or lives, people often take that to mean that emotions don't exist. And what I try to explain is that um, that it emotions are, as you said, they're they're not uh, they're not built into your brain from birth. They are built by your brain in conversation with your body as it needed in particular situations. And we spend our time trying to figure out how that works. And we use that as a flashlight in a way to really understand more generally how brains work and how in relation to your body and, and how they give you the kind of mind that you have. And when you say we, of course, you're referring to the fact that you do this work, but you do it in collaboration with all kinds of colleagues doing studies of various different kinds over many different years. Yes, and I have, I co-direct a lab of about 25 full-time scientists, some of whom uh, are with us for a few years after their bachelor's degree before they go on to uh, graduate school. We have graduate students, postdoctoral fellows, and then scientists who stay on to do research in the lab. So in addition to having a big lab, I also collaborate with lots of other scientists, including engineers and computer scientists, um, other neuroscientists, other psychologists, and, and so on. And so at some point in your career, I assume you're going along, you're doing studies, you're publishing papers, you're going to academic conferences, you're collaborating, you're arguing with uh, people who disagree with the thrust of your work, so on and so forth. At some point in your career, you decided uh, that you were interested in trying to convey the insights and uh, of your work and also the nature of your work to uh, an audience beyond uh, just that of an academic audience. And at what point in your career did that did that happen? And you know, it was kind of later in my career. So, I mean, I'm only midway through my career, but I think a lot of people, a lot of scientists, particularly young scientists, are kind of bitten by the bug really early on. And I, to, to talk to the public and try to communicate science to the public, I wasn't one of those people. I think in part because I was so busy retraining to acquire a new domain of expertise every five years or so, that that's really where my focus was. And uh -huh. uh, really the whole, the whole thrust of my interest came about when in 2012, I guess, uh, there was a journalist who approached me from Boston Magazine wanting to do a feature article on me and my work. And we spent almost six months talking about my work and she was a fantastic person to work with. And she wrote this really interesting, somewhat provocative article. And her editor said to her, well, why does it matter? Okay, so this scientist is overturning current beliefs about emotion, who cares? Like, why does it matter? And my reaction initially was, um, you know, the typical kind of defensive academic <laughs> um, uh -huh. uh, response, which is, well, what do you mean, why does it matter? It's, it's really interesting. Do you, do you ask physicists why it matters, uh, whether they've discovered the Higgs boson or not? You don't require them to explain why that's right. important to everyday life. So why would you be asking me this question? Just be curious. And, you know, so she went back to her editor dutifully and, you know, used my spiel and it didn't work. And the editor just kept pressing and pressing and pressing. And at a certain point, she came to me and said, you know, if... I don't come up with a really good reason. They're not going to publish this article. And at that point, I felt really bad because this person, she's brand new in her field. This was, you know, a big investment of time for her. She'd spent all this time talking to me <laughs> and um, instead of working on something else. And I thought, well, if I don't think about this, she's it's really going to hurt her in, in a way that I, I wouldn't feel uh, very comfortable about. So I 
I sat down and thought about it, seriously thought about it, probably for the first time in my life, honestly. And very... About why your work was relevant to people outside yeah, the Yeah, like why, you know, and mm-hmm. I mean... You know, when we write grant applications, we're always required to say what the broader impacts are of our work. So I can do that in a superficial way. Um, But I really, I guess this time, just really thought about it and very quickly came up with very serious reasons why it's really important that people understand that common beliefs about emotion, which are used in security in medicine, in education, in economics, are wrong, are categorically wrong. And sometimes, in the law, and in sometimes, people's mistaken beliefs can cause uh, someone to lose um, their liberty or their life, actually. So a simple example might be something like... uh you know, a scientific researcher is studying the relationship between anger and cancer. Um, and because they have a kind of static, naive notion of what anger is, uh, they wind up essentially hunting for a correlation that that is missing one of its correlates or something like that. Well, yeah, that's certainly one example. But here, here are a bunch of other examples. Um, you know, uh, people in the law. The law is actually based on a set of folk beliefs that your emotions are these things which hijack you and cause you to engage in bad behavior. And uh, that really the more rational part of your mind has to control your inner beast. And in fact, all of our um, all of our laws and sentencing guidelines are pretty much based on uh, that narrative and there, in my book, actually, uh, How Emotions Are Made, I, I have a whole chapter where I go over lots of examples of uh, how this myth really harms people uh, in, in courtrooms. And, and another really, I think, poignant example in the courtroom is the belief that everyone around the world feels emotion and expresses emotion in universal ways. In the United States... Uh, research shows that the main deciding factor in a capital case where a jury has to make a decision between, uh, so someone's been found guilty of a, of a serious crime and the jury has to decide between uh, life in prison or the death penalty, the main factor which juries use to make that decision ends up being whether or not they believe the defendant who's been found guilty is remorseful for his or her crimes. And in the book, I discuss uh, the case of the Boston Marathon bomber, Zakhar Sarnayev, who, I should add, this bomb went off about a mile from my office. And after a couple of days of lockdown in, in the city, he was caught about two miles from my house. So we were all, um, pre- wow. it was a really pretty scary time. But the thing about uh, uh, Tsarnaev is that he was from, uh, he was raised in, a, in an honor culture, a, a Chechen culture. And he, in that culture, the way that you honor and respect your enemy is to remain stoic. Um, remaining stoic during a trial is not how you express remorse in an American way. And so right. I just want to be really clear when, you know, as I often am when I talk about this, I'm not saying he wasn't guilty. He's clearly guilty and he should clearly be punished for his crimes and which were, which were horrible. And many, many people uh, suffered horribly and still suffer because of the awful things that he did. However, in the United States, to get a fair trial, the jury has to be able to infer, read the hearts and minds of the of the defendants. And um, when you use a belief that emotions are universally expressed uh, to make inferences about someone's uh, remorse and just decide whether or not they will live or die based on that decision, uh, and you're using a flawed uh, belief, that's kind of a problem. And, and so 
I could give you examples from right. emergency rooms, from war rooms, um, from uh, you know classrooms, from um, um, rooms where people make decisions about you know economics and banking. Um, in in each of these domains, there are these mistaken beliefs that people are using, and I thought it was important for me to write a book that would provide people with my best understanding of what the research says and let them make their own decisions about how they want to use that information. That's, that's interesting because I've spoken with other academics, many other academics, about why they became interested in writing in a different way for a different audience. And one hears many answers. Sometimes one hears, well, I had tenure and I had accomplished most of what I wanted to accomplish and I thought this would be a new challenge and a new way to write about my work in a different way. Or you might hear um, people saying, well, I grew up as a huge fan of popular science writing and uh, Carl Sagan was my hero. And so now that I have tenure, I, I kind of just want to do that because that's what got me into the profession in the first place. It sounds like you're saying something that I've heard in different forms from other academics that that you felt that your work uh, wasn't just uh, interesting, but that there were real practical insights, which if conveyed and understood by other people could actually have a positive Im impact in, in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'll be really honest with you and say I what I felt was a responsibility to communicate what uh, my best understanding of of where the scientific story is right now. And it, that's not to say that, I mean, popular science writing is a real challenge because, as you know, part of the part of the challenge is knowing how much you can leave out and still have the story be correct. So you want to communicate, um, you know, that the you want to communicate your best understanding of where the scientific findings are are at, in a given area, but you can't tell the public every tiny little thing, every caveat, every probability, every piece of context, because it won't mean anything to them because they're not, they don't, they don't have all that, all that background. Right. So that there is a real challenge there, but the challenge wasn't really what drove me uh, to, um, to, to bring my writing to the the public, it was really more a sense of responsibility, I think. So that's interesting. When, when you did decide to start doing this uh, kind of writing, uh, what was your relationship to popular science writing? Had you always been a big fan of it? Did you become a big fan of it uh, or at least a student of it? I wouldn't say that I was a big fan of popular science writing. I think like most, I'm just admitting my, my, um, my, my, sure. you know, the dark side, like my most horrible, uh, <laughs> the things I'm probably most embarrassed about. I No, I wasn't a big fan of popular science writing. I will say that I was an avid reader of popular physics, popular writing about physics, mm. mainly because I have struggled to understand like string theory, for example, or, um, you know, I just, there are certain aspects of modern physics that just still elude me. And so I... I was an avid reader of of those books in in hopes of trying to figure out um, something that I couldn't manage to get from uh, you know my introductory physics class in my first year of university. Sure. Um, but um, but I really there were very few popular science books written about psychology uh, that I thought had any value at all. There there were a few that I thought were really well done, but most of them I thought you know you could never look at them and, and not lose anything. When I started to really read them, though, I think more generally was when I uh, decided to write my own book. So I had, so people had been suggesting to me that I write a popular science book for uh, a number of years and agents would come and make pitches and there were university presses and other other academic publishers who who had come and, and and asked me to write. But it wasn't really until I decided to write my own book that I became very interested in writing, in reading um, popular science books. And I would say I read probably 50 or 60 books at that point, 
because what I was doing... That's a lot of books. Yeah, so what I was doing was reading them, though, to analyze how they had been written. So what was the narrative structure? How uh, were there... You know, there's no book that you can find that's like, a here are the 10 ways that people write uh, popular science. So that's what I was looking for. You know, I wanted to know what are the styles people use and uh, and and what are the structures and so on. And there wasn't anything like that. So I just started reading uh, my own and meeting myself and trying to come up with that structure myself and trying to figure out what would be a, a particular narrative structure that would work well for the for me for my personality and for my way of approaching science and you know at the time and I think this is still true to some extent I think everyone was trying to be Malcolm Gladwell you know everyone was uh-huh. all my colleagues who were writing these books were writing very much in a Gladwellian style and you know I I couldn't I'm not Malcolm Gladwell as a writer I mean he you know he has a a wonderful style all his own and I kind of wanted to have my own style and but I didn't know what uh-huh. that was so I had to kind of figure it out and when when you did decide to write a book um, if I'm if I'm if I'm right uh, and correct me if if, if I'm not uh, you didn't just take uh, all the work you had originally done and kind of popularize it. There were there were also uh, passages in the the book uh, where you were laying out material more or less for the first time. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. And what what, what that that seems like a, a like an unusual decision for an academic to make. Was it was that just the way events transpired? By the time you were you know, f- having these findings that made the most sense to put them in the book? Or was that a, a decision made in advance for a particular reason? And if so, what was, the re- what was the thinking there? No, I think what was happening really is that in my scientific life, in my laboratory, I was grappling with a set of questions. And that happened to be occurring at the same time as I was writing the book. And so what I did was um, I took this as an opportunity to work through some of those questions in a more theoretical way. So I was able to uh, give a concentrated effort to reading a whole bunch of stuff in a short period of time that normally would have taken me several years to, to, so I did, you know, in three years, probably what would have taken me, I don't know, at least twice that amount of Mm. time because I was doing it in a really, really concentrated way. And, um, it was extremely helpful. Uh, I should also say, I mean, I had also research assistants helping me. So what was ha- what would happen is as I was reading and synthesizing, I would send off requests for papers or books. And, you know, an hour or two later, they would appear in my inbox. So uh, I had, um, you know, I, I had other people kind of, uh, you know, finding materials for me. Um, very quickly so that I it really sp- really sped things up I don't know how to describe it other than to say um, the way that I work is I when I'm trying to solve a scientific problem I tend to read very broadly like well beyond the boundaries of the you know the field whatever the question is right so if I'm really interested for example um, you know in mm. the brain in in a particular, um, way that a brain, a network of neurons works in the brain, I won't just read about that network of neurons. I'll read about all sorts of other um, things about the brain. I'll read about brain evolution. I'll also read about metabolism and the nervous system more generally. And I might even read about, um, you know, the way that the brain is understood in multiple cultures. And I'm so I'm reading really broadly um, and I'm kind of loading all that information into what uh, a psychologist would call working memory, which just means you're you're actively working with that material. And this allows me to see connections between things that I probably otherwise wouldn't see. Uh, and And that's really helpful when you're trying to create a path forward in in a scientific narrative. So I was learning about uh, the brain, you know, we think about brains as reacting to things in the world, you know, um, you see a snake, you react with fear, you know, your heart rate goes up, you run away uh, in, in terror. But brains actually are not, anatomically, they're not structured to 
to react. They are structured to predict, to predict what's going to happen next. Um, they evolve that way. They, um, they're, they're wired that way. It's metabolically more efficient for a brain to try to predict what's going to happen next and then correct itself than to just react uh, uh, from, um, you know, zero to 60 kind of thing. And that, I was learning about that at, in my scientific uh, life as I was writing my book. And um, uh, so... I see. So you're saying that as you were telling the story, in order to tell the story in the book that you wanted to tell, it was just inescapable that you were going to be not learning new things, synthesizing new things, and ultimately coming to new conclusions. It, it was almost... There was no way to, to write the book. It wasn't like you started out and said, I'm going to write what I already know and deliver that to our reader. It was, I'm going to write you know, a story that I want to tell about what I think the mind and brain and emotions are like. And in the course of telling that story, you were continuing to synthesize and include new things. And the, just, so the novelty of the book, of the ideas in the book, was kind of baked into the process of writing it more than it was a decision you made at the outset to have new stuff in the book. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I would say that probably at least 70% uh, of that book was me writing what I already uh -huh. knew or maybe just elaborating on things that I already knew or the research I had already done. But the whole, as I mean, the, the, the whole narrative about the predictive brain was just emerging in neuroscience um, as I was writing this book. So of course I knew about it and it was something that I was reading about anyways and working with anyways and designing experiments about anyways. But it, what it meant was if I wanted to incorporate it at all into the book, which I did, it meant that I would have to go much deeper and much broader, much faster than I normally would. And actually it was quite, it was quite thrilling to, to do it that way. It was also really painful because, you know, I had a full-time job. <laughs> I had a full-time job. I was running a lab, you know, and uh, and I also, um, you know, I'm a mom and I have a family. And um, so uh, so there were a lot of demands um, on my time, but it was really, really rewarding. Um, and it actually had a huge effect on the lab. I mean, it was just a real boon, actually, for our research in that particular direction. And so, Lisa, at some point, uh, you're working on your book, um, and uh, as far as I know, doing doing other writing with um, with other publications and stuff. But at some point, um, you you I believe you reached out to me. I know the first piece that you published in the Times um, that I edited was called "What Faces Can't Tell Us." Um, it was about a relatively narrow part of your work, which is about whether faces kind of reliably broadcast emotions, um, and that was published in March of 2014, almost almost six years ago. Um, uh, how, how did you, do you recall how you ended up uh, getting in touch with me? Oh, absolutely. I emailed my very good friend, Dave DeSteno, uh, who um, is my partner in crime, actually, <laughs> as you know, uh, with you. And, uh, but I emailed him and I said, hey, I have these pretty amazing findings, you know, because my lab... Uh, went to uh, rural northwestern Namibia to test, uh, to do experiments with uh, members of the Himba community. Um, and so these are people who don't have too much contact with the Western world. And so we were doing research, understanding how they perceive emotion in faces. And so the hypothesis is that everyone around the world smiles when they're happy and frowns when they're sad and scowls when they're angry. And everyone around the world recognizes smiles and uh, frowns and scowls as expressing emotion. And so we were testing that hypothesis in this really remote culture. And we had just published a couple of papers and I thought this was pretty interesting stuff. And I was also, uh, so I thought it was pretty interesting stuff. And I normally that's where things would would end uh, for me. I might write, you know, a press release or something when the paper comes out. But I was now preparing to write a popular science book, and I knew that no one knew who I was, mm. and no one had any motivation to buy a book. Who cares what I 
have to say because who is this you know who is this woman and like who you know no one knows who you are why would they buy your book so I knew that I had to start writing for the public and I figured I'd give myself a couple of years lead time um, because you know it like I said, I have a, I have a full-time job. Yeah, sure. And so I I emailed Dave and I said, hey, Dave, you've been writing for the public for a while. Do you know anybody at the New York Times who uh, might be interested in um, in this work and, and having me do a piece? Um, and um, he suggested that I contact you. I guess he maybe he checked with you first. That's usually... What I, certainly what I do when someone approaches me, I check with you yeah, first. Yeah, I think and, that's my recollection too. That he may have asked if it was yeah. okay, and yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was a little, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say shy, but I was a little reticent to do it because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I mean, I I'm a pretty good science writer for scientists. I think. Um, I mean, my dissertation advisor. 25 years ago would have told you something differently but I think by after 25 years I've kind of learned something um but I'd never done this before so I was feeling pretty uh pretty nervous about it uh and you know the just like cold calling somebody at the New York Times that's kind of bold so but I thought, what the hell? What's the worst that can happen? You'll say no, and then you know, or you won't answer, and and then uh, I'll just keep you know keep doing my stuff. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll say what, what, one one of my main recollections from that piece, which again, if people are interested, is called "What Faces Can't Tell Us" um, from March of two thousand fourteen. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I often get pieces by um, researchers who have a a very interesting finding, um, and. Um, and this seemed like like a very interesting finding. Everyone sort of seems to assume that you can reliably read emotions off of people's faces. You can look at someone's face and say, oh, I think that person's, you know, terrified and that you'll most likely be right and things like that. Um, so it just seemed to kind of contravene common sense. I thought, well, that's interesting because it seems like a bold claim. And um, and you had found some, some I think, Department of Homeland Security initiative or something like that that uh, that had was trying to you know automate the reading of emotions off of faces or something like that. So there was a you know kind of a public policy angle which felt felt like a kind of nice, dutiful kind of op-ed way of connecting your insights to um, to you know to a kind of you know opinion newspaper opinion concern like public policy spending and things like that. Um, so I thought it was a great piece, but, um, you know, it's often the case that I'll work with an academic on a narrow finding and it's a, it's a, I'm very happy with the piece and that's sort of the end of the story. And I, I, I often tell people that, uh, you know, one reason that I feel like you and I wound up working together a lot was because I was able to discover that you, that this interesting finding was embedded in a much larger, uh, framework for understanding human beings um, and that in addition to just being interesting on its own, um, that there were all kinds of implications for um, for understanding humans once you started looking at emotions the way you do, uh, you know, as you said, for understanding law and for understanding uh, anger in society or for understanding, um, you know, just how people look at politicians and their faces and all, all kinds of things kind of fell out as implications from your work. Um, and um, uh, and what I was trying to remember, and I don't know if you remember, is h- how it is that in the, in the course of talking about your faces piece that we came to, uh, to realize that there was a, or, or for how I came to learn that there was a larger uh, intellectual context for your particular finding. Oh, I very much remember this. I, I very much remember this. So I was telling you about this work and uh, I was telling you about these studies and I think I was also telling you that we had also done these big um, statistical summaries of other people's um, studies, which are called meta-analyses, where you, you know, you you sort of take all of the statistics from other people's studies and you analyze them and summarize Uh them. Uh, And I was telling you that we had also found not only is, um, not only do people make, you know, people sometimes, uh, even in the US, sometimes they scowl when they're angry about 30% of the time, um, which is more than chance, you know, Um, but that means 70% of the time they're not scowling. 
when they're angry. They're doing something else with their face. And also people scowl when they're not angry. Um, they scowl when uh, they're confused. They scowl when they're concentrating really hard. They scowl when they have gas. So um, I was telling you about this and I was saying, yeah, you know, it's not just for faces, actually. Even when we measure people's bodies, you know, we measure their heart rate. We measure their how much they sweat or we measure how fast they're breathing. We find something similar as well. Um, you know, people's bodies aren't reacting or aren't aren't performing randomly in emotion, um, their bodies are, what's happening inside their body is linked to whatever action they're going to take. And, you know, when, so for example, when someone is afraid, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes they might freeze in fear. Sometimes they might run away. Sometimes they might attack in fear. Sometimes they might laugh in the face of fear. People do many things in fear. Actually, rats do, uh, all animals do, you know, various things. In a given situation, so um, I was telling you, oh, well, not only is this mapping, you know, not only are there no um, fingerprints in the face, there are no fingerprints in the body and also no fingerprints in the brain, um, that actually the story is much more complex and way more interesting. And you said the magic words. You said, so you're saying emotion categories are not natural kinds. And I was like, wait, what? How, he used the he used a philosophy he used a philosophy phrase. Um, you're not a you know you're not a scientist, and I didn't at that time know that you had an undergraduate degree in philosophy. Uh, but you asked me a question that only another scientist would or philosopher would ask me, and you asked it in a way that made it really clear that you were following exactly what I was saying and taking it to the next level, and. I was so excited by that. That yeah, um, I, I remember being excited as well. And uh, but for me, what was exciting was that I was like, "Here's this uh, scientist who came to me with a piece, uh, you know, where she said, look, 'Look, we've discovered that the face can't reliably broadcast emotions.' Well, that's that's an interesting finding. And I, then I was talking to you, and I said, "Wait a second, this scientist is telling me that." In, in, you know, that's, that emotions don't exist in any way like the form that we conventionally assume that they exist. Um, to me, that seemed like a, journalistically, it seemed like a much bigger story. So I think a lot of my excitement was just, well, I think my first reaction was to tell you that we need to do, you know, a piece just about that, like a piece that lays out, you know, your understanding of the nature of emotions, because the face thing is fascinating. And it's, you know, it's, it's a, uh, you know, it's it's very important in all kinds of ways, but you have a much bigger story to tell here. And though you were focusing on my reaction in terms of uh, it being, a, say, a kind of quasi-academic reaction, for me, the, my reaction felt very journalistic. I just felt like, wow, here's the big story. Like how, you know, how can this person be pitching me a story about faces when in fact there's a bigger story to tell about what emotions are at all. Um, and, I, and I think I had a sense that once that story was told, that there would be other stories to tell, that once once you understand emotions in a radically different way, there's going to be all kinds of other stories that just fall out about, um, about you know, about how, how what human beings are like, how human institutions should function, um, all the things you were mentioning earlier about law and... Um, medicine, all kinds of ways where emotions figure um, and where our understanding of them uh, is is relevant. So, um, so that was my reaction. What excited me was not that you were responding to me like an academic, but that you had intuited the bigger story that I have dedicated my life as a scientist to figuring out. So I felt immediately in that moment, just by your asking that question, like, oh my God, this guy totally understands what I'm, what the big project is. That, that was just so, <laughs> it was so exciting to me. And it also gave me confidence, a little bit of confidence that maybe actually I could do this. Like maybe I could, maybe I could successfully take really complicated ideas and communicate them into to the public in a way that um, that they could connect to and use. And so 
I guess it, really what I felt was I felt understood. And and also you didn't say, well, that's just preposterous. You said that's really, <laughs> you know, that's really interesting. And um, and so for I me... I didn't think it was preposterous, but I, <laughs> I, I, I figured there'd be some arguments in support of the uh, idea. Yeah, no, but I mean, uh, but, you know, you uh, let's just say that, um, you know, in my scientific career... Um, uh, I've, I've been really swimming against the tide in a sense. The, the view of the mind and the body and the brain that I take is very um, different from uh, w- mainstream psychology in certain ways. It has a lot in common actually with engineering and computer science and, and certainly with more computational um, aspects in neuroscience. But it's a, it's a, um, it's it's been um, swimming against the tide. So when you meet someone who who doesn't just get what you're saying, but they intuit the next step, that's that was just really really exciting. And then I remember I have this really vivid memory that we set up a time to talk uh, about this larger issue, and uh-huh. I got caught. I was coming home from a, a trip, and I got caught in Pittsburgh Airport, and I remember really clearly just sitting in the middle of the airport in Pittsburgh with like people just going by and you and I were having this uh-huh. incredibly intense conversation about um, about what what future pieces might look like and what the sort of the bigger intellectual project was and it was like I had this moment where you know the rest of the world, the noise, you know, in the movies, how like the noise <laughs> of the world just drifts away and there you are really focused. I mean, I had very, one of these very like cinematic. Yeah, I had one of these <laughs> one of these moments. It And my recollection was it was a really great conversation. And this is the this is the um, uh, that was the conversation before what emotions are and aren't. Right. Which is a piece you published in July of 2015. Um, it's funny when I look back at the that piece that one of the main things that that I'm struck by is what is just a classic bit of journalistic misdirection because it's called what emotions are and then in parentheses and aren't. Right. But of course, the piece is entirely about what they aren't. And uh, at the end, there's just the slightest kind of gesturing in the direction of, of what they are and how you're going to, uh, uh, which again, journalistically is the kind of thing I totally understand because um, uh, because it's it's it, it's it's very complicated to in a piece of this size to explain both the negative part of your theory and the positive part of your theory. Um, but a piece called "What Emotions Aren't" um, it would be very hard to sell to a reader. So, right, right, right. Um, a little bit right. of misdirection. I don't think anyone was disappointed. Um, uh, did you? Um, so that piece came out uh, at some. How long before your book came oh, out? Oh, like a really long time before my book. And in some ways, you know. From a publishing standpoint, from the from you know that wasn't smart, <laughs> right? But um, but you know my book was published in in winter of 2017, so that was like what like 18 months almost. Uh, two years, yeah, yeah, almost two years before the book. So you know, not so smart in a in a sense, but but I wasn't again. I wasn't. I often am not thinking about when I when I uh, get the idea to write something I I, I just want to write it like I, I don't um, I'm I, I don't really approach these things terribly strategically you know for better or for worse so. and at some point uh, I don't remember if it was after this piece or after um, the following piece you did you did a piece in September of that same year about the replication crisis um, I, but in my recollection, at some point in that in that period, um, you asked me to do a little bit of reading and a little bit of conversation with you, uh, and even a little bit of editing uh, on the book itself. Obviously, um, you know you had your own editor on the book, but you and I had been collaborating in a productive way, and uh, it just made sense for for you and I to to, uh, to look for opportunities to to collaborate a little on the book. Um, okay, and, now uh, you're now you're just being modest. Seriously, <laughs> now you're just being modest because you totally saved my uh, life on that book. I, if, if this wasn't a podcast, I'd be using more colorful <laughs> language. Um, you know, I mean, like I said, there's a lot of complicated science behind this. So when we talk about something being a theory, 
we're, we're using that word, okay, in the way that the National Academies of Science uses it, which is to say, a theory isn't just a bunch of ideas. It's a bunch of ideas that's backed up by a lot of evidence. And there was a lot of evidence. And I put it all into that book. And remember at the beginning of our chat today, I said, you know, good science writing is knowing what to leave out. And, right. you know, um, Stephen King has this really awesome phrase. I, I also read a lot of books about writing when I was preparing to write. And I read his book, which is a fantastic book. And he has this really nice phrase, which maybe is other people say too, I don't know, which is, you know, be prepared to kill your darlings, which is, <laughs> you know, so basically... I needed uh, a really good editor, and I had a really good editor, um, but I really needed two really good editors. You know, I, I, it, was a, it was a Herculean job. It wasn't a job for one person. And you came in really in the 11th hour, and you totally, you know, you totally, um, I don't want to say that you saved the book. I, I will say that you, that book is what it is. Um, in part because your fingerprints are all over it. You you had a sem you made a seminal contribution as an editor, and I will also say that um, I, in working with you and um, and and other editors too, but but I would say my working with you is a more formative was more f a formative uh, set of experiences for me um, because you were my first. Um, uh, you know, I realized, um, just how much, um, uh, editorial work can, is really a meeting of the minds. It's a real collaboration of ideas in some ways it, when I am the editor of my students' papers, right, and my postdocs' papers, and I'm also serving that role for them. I'm doing more than just wordsmithing. Um, I'm actually helping to shape, in fundamental ways, um, the narrative, right? It's a, it's, it's. Yeah, I it, totally agree yeah. with that. I, yeah. I've often find that my favorite edits that I've done at the Times, whether magazine feature stories or opinion pieces, are edits where I, I, I almost never touch the prose. Like I've done, I've done edits where it's just purely conversations before the piece, after the piece, and at the end, and the, the, you know, the, the, the finished product feels like it's a result of a real collaboration, but it's not like. I went in there and made the piece the way I wanted it to be. Um, I simply, you know, had a kind of conversation with someone over time that, you know, ended up being useful in the way that, as we all know from all conversations that are good, uh, what what results is something that neither individual could have come up with on his or her own. So that's always the most satisfying part of editing. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say, I mean, you are you are really masterful at at, at wordsmithing and and at the the sort of the um you know, the the nuts and bolts of of editing a piece. But I would say what I have, I would say the thing that I probably value the most in, in working with you and enjoy the most actually is talking to you about a piece. So, um, you know, so you and I, when I pitch a piece to you, um, you and I, we don't always have conversations because you often just say no right away. <laughs> but, um, but uh, well, not often, sure. but you know, I mean. But when I pitch a piece to you that you find interesting, we have a conversation about it and already the editorial process has begun and I haven't even put a, a word to the page yeah. yet um, because we're, we're thinking together about what's the best way to tell this little story. Um, and, you know, um, that's, I think... Um, that's not something that I really understood about editing until I started to work with you. For me, the, the, one of the great upshots of, of editing the book with you was that uh, we wound up having fairly free-flowing and um, farther-ranging conversations about the nature of editing. And, and you had really suggested that implicit in the uh, craft of editing the pieces were you know general principles that could be extracted and that in the course of uh, working together, you found yourself kind of internalizing, uh, you know, comments that I may have made so that, you know, so that at the level of writing and maybe even general principles at the level of kind of conceiving pieces and so forth, that that there were 
lessons that could be extracted, that some way there was a body of knowledge that could be imparted to people um, and it didn't have to be done on an ad hoc basis in the course of editing a particular piece. But as you suggested, maybe we could do workshops and get people together and and really try to to generalize some of these insights and uh, and so on and so forth. So uh, that was an interesting uh, that was an interesting experience because I feel like for you, you found that editing the book had various virtues for the resulting book in your own writing. For me, it, I feel like you were suggesting that there were actual takeaways from doing this sort of writing that could be generalized and applied. Um, and I suppose one question I have for you is, is having done this sort of writing, not just for me, but for other people, um, you know, and even just I, just in the course of doing book promotion and TED Talks and various other forms of outreach for these ideas, I'm curious what you think the biggest takeaways for you have been from doing this sort of writing, um, both at the level of writing in terms of how it's affected your writing, but also at the level of kind of thinking about your work. Um, what what have been some of the big takeaways of of making the shift to doing popular writing? Well, I first want to go back before I answer that question. I first want to go back and say um, it it became really clear to me in our conversations that I wasn't just benefiting that my that the the text that I had written for the for the book manuscript wasn't just benefiting from uh, having your your eye on it or your mind on it, but that I was actually learning. I could abstract uh, away from the details of what you were doing to general more general principles about uh, writing for the public and um, what makes a good um, st- what makes a good story what makes a good story for say an eight hundred to a thousand word op-ed piece versus mm-hmm. a chapter in a book and I was really blown away by just the general principles that I was able to abstract from watching you, listening to you, um, um, take apart uh, my narrative and put it back together. And and so I, so when I floated this idea by you, because I was like, well, I've benefited tremendously, but I think other people can benefit too. And I know there are a lot of people in, in certainly in psychology, but also elsewhere who, who really who really want to talk to the public directly. Um, I, um, again, um, after you expressed an interest in it, again, I, I went back to Dave DeSteno and said, what do you think about this? And um, and he thought it was an amazing idea and because he also has had very similar experience with you. And then we went looking for, for funding and Templeton stepped up and, you know, um, uh, and, you know, things emerged as they, as they've been. So, um, so I, I guess what I, what I want to say is that, um, that, you know, one of the things that made me, one of the reasons why I had to go re- read fifty or sixty books uh, to figure out how to write one of these books and like what I wanted to say and and how I wanted to say it, um, was because there, there really is no manual. Just like there's no manual for how to write an op-ed or what makes a story interesting. Uh, uh, to the public, you know, what, what makes a story interesting to the public, what makes a science story interesting isn't necessarily what makes it right. interesting to another scientist. Um, and I think that, I still don't know that I completely have that down, but at least I know that's true, right? So I, it's, I still sometimes can't take my science, my scientist hat off, right? That, that there, there has to be something Okay, so now I'm now I'm transitioning into answering your question. So I just wanted to ma- mainly say that you you sort of glossed over, I think, the fact that you, you it's pretty pro- it was pretty profound for me the, um, to have the opportunity. It was formative for me to have the opportunity to learn from you in the way that I did, which was to watch you think your way through a piece that I had written as you edited it. It was really to, to, and you let me ask you questions like, 
why why did you do this why did you make that decision why you know what were you trying to achieve here and you were also able to explain to me in a process based way what what you were trying to achieve what you know what themes you were trying to bring out or um what um what little threads you know needed to be tied up and not pursued any further like, so you, you were just really very you were able to to um articulate y- what you were trying to do and you were also really willing to kind of play uh the game with me you were willing to um to to, to tell me let me sort of let me into your mind a bit to to see how you were thinking through an editorial problem and so that's really what let me learn from you in a more process-based way and what made me realize well you'd probably be a fantastic instructor to teach people the craft of writing for the public so having having done this sort of uh popular writing both for the times and for editors at other outlets um what have been maybe the one or two biggest takeaways for you just in terms of how you're how you approach writing uh and maybe in in terms of the level of which you think about your work the way that i approach writing i guess i would say what interests me as a scientist is not always what interests me as a science reader a reader of popular science in some domain that i am not uh knowledgeable in so what interests me about my own work the things that i find completely fascinating um, about my own work um, is not necessarily what the public is gonna, you know, what not necessarily things that the public will will resonate to. Um, and you feel like you've become more mindful of that. I do, I have, yeah. And mm. I also, um, I'm much more aware of the difference between what I want to say and what I think an audience mm. wants to hear about. And um, I think knowing that a little bit, um, uh, you know, uh, so my theory of mind, I would say, for my reader, who is not an expert in my field, has has improved. I I still sometimes um, get so excited by just, you know, seeing something in the news or seeing something happening in the world and understanding how to apply research to explain it like just explaining it seems so interesting to me um in a way that is not interesting to probably the majority of other people um you know i still i still i wouldn't say make that mistake but i still um i still have that urge to just you know i mean like i suppose it's just the you know, it's just the hazard of being a professor that you're constantly wanting to explain things to people. Um, I'm sure my daughter could give you an earful about that. But, um, but I, I would say that I'm more, um, I think I'm more mindful of um, what, um, what is it about, what's the scientific, what are the scientific nuggets or narratives that, um, that other that people who are not experts, you know, what, what I would call civilians, um, what they're interested in, what what, what really grabs them, um, and I will say too that uh, you know a lot of people um, write about or think that uh, you know that the average person isn't that interested in science and isn't that interested in philosophy and um, isn't really that interested in taking scientific findings and um, using them to probe big questions about what it means to be human or um, what it means to live in, a, in the kind of world that we live in. And mm. I just don't think that's true. That's just not my experience at all. Um, the kinds of questions people ask me, the, the emails, I mean, I'm still, you know, how emotions are made has been um, in print now for almost three years. And it's still, I'm still on a daily basis um, receiving emails, you know, now I'm receiving one or two emails a day instead of, you know, uh, 20 or 30 or 50 in a day, but, but still one or two a day after three years, um, uh, from people who are just cold emailing me, you know, makes me, it really makes me, 
it gives me a pretty warm feeling because what it means is that um, the book has been a vehicle for people to connect with um, with, with science and um, scientific meaning uh, and really maybe some philosophy too um, in a way that they might not you know, they might not otherwise. It gave them an opportunity. So that's, for me, that's really, really cool. And it occurs to me hearing you talk that, you know, you've written, you know, 11 pieces for The Times. You've written pieces for various other outlets. You've you've written the book. You have a forthcoming book uh, called Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, which I'm very excited for people to read. Uh, you've done a TED, TED Talk. And you've really, um, you know, you haven't just written a handful of opinion pieces. You've really kind of put yourself out in a, in, a, in a fairly complex ecosystem of kind of ways of communicating about science. Um, and I'm just kind of, I'm curious how, do you see all of those um, outlets as essentially functioning the same? Do you, do you see them as kind of some as supporting the other? Um, is it all about, um, is the book kind of the central, central node and everything else um, kind of... Uh, help support it. I'm just kind of curious as someone who, who's, who's been communicating about her ideas in a lot of different forums. Again, not just the Times, but, you know, I feel like a variety of different magazines, some of them more highbrow, some of them more kind of middle of the road. You, you, you've just been very game to get your work out in all kinds of different ways. And um, I'm curious if if you are doing that in an intentional way or just that's just uh, how your enthusiasm is manifesting itself. Curious how you think about that kind of ecosystem of, of forums. Yeah, well, I really do think about it like an ecosystem. That's exactly right. And I wouldn't say that, um, you know, whatever I happen to be working on at a particular moment in time, I usually think that's the most important thing that I'm doing. And then I finish it and then I go on onto something else. And then that's the most important thing, <laughs> you know, the most important thing that I'm doing. So what, what I would say, though, is that um, uh, I, again, it for me, it's, it's, you know, working in all of these different domains is fun in the way that exercising is fun, mm, by which I mean... Yeah, you know, it's it's hard. Actually, writing for the public is is much harder. TED Talks, you know, giving TED Talks or gi- giving public addresses, all these things are actually much harder um, to do than academic writing, um, just probably because I've done academic writing for, tw- you know, 27 years or something. And I've given academic talks for, for uh, many, many years. Although I will say, I do think that my writing and my uh, and my talks in the academic uh, domain have improved significantly because uh, I've acquired a whole set of skills um, uh, because when I from having to commute from the skills that are required or, or necessary for communicating with the public. Sure. Um, but no, I, I, I think that they're they're all really interesting um, and they all have their own they all have their own um, challenges to them. Uh, and, you know, I haven't, for example, ever written a longer magazine piece, um, uh, which I think is something that I would really like to try. And I'm, I think writing for, for less, you know, I don't know what you call it, lowbrow. I mean, you know, I've done pieces for Cosmo. I'd love to do a piece. Um, uh, I, I like doing pieces that are um, sometimes... You know, I can be a little snarkier, or I can be a little more freewheeling. Uh-huh. Um, um, I I would love to do a piece for um, Vogue, or you know, so th- that's a domain, you know, like a fashion magazine or something where, um, you know, relating emotion or even philosophy of mind to fashion, which I think could be really interesting. I'd be really interested to uh, write op eds for um, a conservative outlet or maybe you know maybe um even um a newspaper like you know usa today so i think what i'm doing is exploring venues and like avenues for communicating science to people in lots of different ways but i wouldn't say that one is more important than another they're just i'm just trying things out to see what I can learn. Well, I think uh, I think the public uh, would um, benefit and enjoy 
um, you continuing to reach out in, in all these different uh, forums. Um, and I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk today and for, for um, being one of the most um, interesting and um, prolific contributors I've had in the science side at the, here at the New York Times over the last uh, uh, five or six years. Well, I have so many things to thank you for. We would be here for another half an hour if I started. So <laughs> I'll, I'll just um, uh, thank you for those kind thoughts and, and um, thank you for everything else. You're welcome. Thanks, Lisa. Yeah. Thank you again so much for listening to Line Edit. I'm James Ryerson. You can find out more about our project by following us on Twitter at The Line Edit. Uh, to be sure, that is at the underscore line underscore edit, uh, where you will find videos about each of the pieces we discuss on the show, as well as news and information about upcoming guests, upcoming workshops, and other events. We are extremely grateful to the John Templeton Foundation for its support and to the incredible staff at its public engagement program who make all of this possible. Uh, the foundation is dedicated to Uh, the best possible thinking about the deepest questions about who we are and what the world is like. And the public engagement team is dedicated to making sure that those insights are disseminated as widely as possible and not just within the academy. We're so grateful as well to the Department of Psychology at the College of Science at Northeastern University, where this project is administered. This episode was produced and hosted by me, James Ryerson, and was executive produced and edited by the redoubtable Joseph Fridman, science communication maven extraordinaire. Our theme was composed by Steve LaRosa at Wonderboy Audio. Special thanks to Dave DeSteno, my other partner in crime uh, at Northeastern University, to Mia Lobel at Pushkin Industries, to Jennifer Dale and the staff at the CUNY Newmark School of Journalism, just down the street from the New York Times. Thanks also to Annie Brown, Brad Fisher, Dan Powell, Lisa Tobin, and the entire audio team at the New York Times for making this recording happen. And of course, thanks to Lisa for the conversation. You will uh, find her new book, uh, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, in stores this fall. And we hope you will join us next time for Line Edit.